Welcome to Hidden Headlines, the good news, the God news, the stuff the secular media does not talk about. I'm your host, Brian Sussman. This is Hidden Headlines for the last week of 2018. I sure hope 2018 has been a good year for you. And if it hasn't, the good news is 2019 is soon upon us. Listen, life can hit us in the face. Bad things can happen to good people. We all run into challenges and tough times. But can I just say this as a word of encouragement? If you'll just allow the Lord to shoulder the load for you, things can be a lot better. Now, why the Lord? Some of you may be listening saying, "Eh, I, I believe, but I don't quite believe like you do, Sussman. Well, then maybe the interview you're about to hear will embolden your weak faith and make you strong again, because this is what the Lord would have for you. The Lord wants you to have life and life abundant. That's what the Bible says. He wants you to have life and life abundant. In this lifetime, he wants you to experience abundant life. Now, what does that mean? Well, I don't think it necessarily means riches or glory, fame, fortune. I think an abundant life is one in which you're at peace with yourself and you can find joy in all circumstances, somehow find joy in all circumstances. Now, I know for the many people that are listening right now, uh, you have a lot of challenges, a lot of troubles, a lot of trials, and you're looking at things thinking, I I really can't do this. You don't understand. You don't know my situation. Well, I don't know your situation. But I can tell you there have been some bad times in my life, the details I don't need to go into, where I literally didn't think I could last another day. And how did I make it in those situations? I made it on a minute-by-minute basis, literally. Just praying that the Lord would give me the strength, praying that the Lord would give me just what I needed in that particular moment. You see, it's called grace. Now, by the way, before I get too far into this, in just a moment, I'm going to have an interview with a great uh, rabbi, Charlie Cohen. Uh, Charlie is a Messianic rabbi, and we're going to talk about why Jesus, Yeshua, is indeed the Messiah. So we're going to go through a lot of the biblical prophecies that were written hundreds, yea, even thousands of years before Jesus came on the scene in the form of a baby in the manger who lived for 30-some-odd years on planet Earth, revealing himself to the people of Israel. So we're going to talk about that in just a moment. I really want you to stick around for that interview. But can I back up for just a moment? I hadn't planned on this. I opened up this microphone today saying, okay, here we go. But I feel as if I'm prompted now by the Holy Spirit to talk about grace for just a moment. Because, again, I don't know who's listening to this broadcast. I know a lot of people are. A lot of people are listening on SoundCloud, iTunes, Google Play, and a variety of other platforms, which is really encouraging. The numbers are growing on a regular basis. But let's talk about grace for a second, because some of you may be just going through it like nobody's business, and no one understands the problems that you're carrying with you right now. I get it. What is grace? I, I once heard this from a woman named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom. Uh, Corey was a Christian girl whose family had been locked up in Auschwitz. I believe it was Auschwitz. It was one of the camps. 
And uh, the family was locked up as Christians because uh, they were aiding and abetting in the hiding of Jews during, uh, during World War II. So they're caught, they're rounded up, she's a young girl. And she survives the concentration camp. There was one moment that she describes in her many, many writings on this. She's, she's long since passed. But I remember seeing her at a place called Mount Hermon in Santa Cruz. This is back in the 80s. And uh, I remember reading her books. And there's even a movie about her. But there was a moment in time when she arrived at the camp with her sister. I think it might have been a twin sister. Otherwise, it was just a sister very close to her age. And they were called to run forward towards, it may have been Joseph Mengele. They were told to run forward, and it would be determined upon their run forward towards this particular German officer or official um, whether they would live or die. You'd be either pointed in this direction or that direction. And as she was running, she's pointed in the right direction she is spared. But they had to go through a living hell in that camp before they were finally liberated. So many years later, she talks about the fact that God's grace allowed her to survive in that hellish situation for all those years. And she described God's grace this way. She remembered when she was a little child going to the big city with her father. I believe it may have been Munich. But her father, they would take a train. Her father would not give her the ticket to go on the train until they were stepping onto the train. In other words, he didn't give her the ticket at home. He didn't give her the ticket once they were clearly on board the train and rolling. He gave her the ticket just as she set her foot on the first stair to go into the train. That's God's grace. He gives you what you need when you need it. He gives you what you need just when you need it. And so I remember during some of my moments of despair in life where I didn't think I could actually make it another, another minute, another hour, certainly another day, God always provided what I needed to make it through. And so that's what I'm praying for some of you right now, that you will just allow God's grace to come into your life to make it through whatever's eating you up right now. And if 2018 has been a crappy year for you, well, then my prayer is that 2019 is better. And how could we not pray that? So again, um, I, I hope you will enjoy uh, this, this, uh, this podcast Again, I came to this microphone knowing I wanted to talk about a few different things and I've just gone way off base. So forgive me for that. But I also wanted to talk about, before we get to this interview with Rabbi Charlie Cohen, just another example of God's grace. This will be a future podcast for my Another Chance podcast. And if you haven't listened to those, please do. I mean, these, these things, they're really great. There are stories about people I know who have just had some incredible encounters with God. God gave them another chance. I don't call it second chance. I call it another chance because if, if God only gives us an extra chance, well, you got a second chance, bud. I, I blew through that one decades ago, okay? So I've needed chance after chance after chance after chance. 
but uh, there's a, a guy who's been instrumental in my life on, on many levels. His name is uh, Sam Huddleston. And uh, Samuel Michael Huddleston, to be specific. And uh, Samuel was such a key figure in our lives that I actually named one of my sons in his honor. He was my son Samuel's namesake and my son Samuel's uh, godfather. But I first met Sam, and he's going to be... We, uh, we, well, we actually recorded a podcast with Sam, but then Sam called me up with some news, and I said, okay, scratch it. We're going to re-record the whole thing. I first met Samuel when he was just a young man, a little older than me. I think I was maybe 22, and he's 23, three years old, 24. But he was convicted for the crime of, well, here, I'm going to read this. This is an official document from the state of California. Samuel Michael Huddleston. He was sentenced on or about September 3rd, 1971 in the Superior Court of the State of California in and for the County of Merced for the crime of murder. Specifically, Mr. Huddleston participated in the robbery of a liquor store in which the owner was stabbed and killed. He served four years, seven months, and one year, nine months parole. He was discharged on January 18th, 1978, having completed his sentence. So looking back, I met him in 77, I guess, when he was still on parole. Okay, so that that makes sense. He was on parole when I met him. Uh, But the bottom line is, he has been pardoned by the state of California. That's the good news. He was pardoned by the state of California just, well, on Christmas Eve. Governor Jerry Brown pardoned him. Now, what does a pardon mean? This This is something that is really cool. Uh, A pardon is a government's decision to allow a person to be absolved of guilt for an alleged crime or other legal offense, as if the act never occurred. Now, why is this important? Because when you acknowledge that Yeshua is Messiah, when you acknowledge that he is the sacrifice lamb slain for the sins of the world, when you acknowledge that he died for your sins, when you acknowledge that he died for your sins, past, present, and future, when you acknowledge the fact that he is the Savior who also provides you with eternal life, when you acknowledge all that, guess what? Your sins have been pardoned. It's as if this bad stuff you've done, the bad stuff you've thought, never occurred. (laughs) And guess what? When you screw up again in the future... All you have to do is sincerely come to your Heavenly Father and say, I've sinned. Please forgive me. Forgive me. Change me. Help me. Guess what? It's like it never happened. This is the awesome news of a God who cares. The awesome news of a God who can pardon. So the bottom line is, my friend Samuel was pardoned by Governor Brown on Christmas Eve. Uh, What's also very important to this story is the fact that the family of the victim has also forgiven Sam. Uh, Now, how do I play into this? Well, I I have a small role. Sam, just after we concluded our first effort at another Chance podcast, he said, hey, listen, do you know the governor? I said, no, I don't know the governor. He goes, well, I mean, in all your media travels, have you ever met him? I said, well, yeah, I've met him. I've met him a few times. I actually... You know, I've had him on my radio show a few times, so it's all coming back to me. Well, I, I, he, he knows of me. Certainly I know of him. He's the governor. Uh, 
Used to be the mayor of San Francisco, uh, of Oakland as well. That's when he used to be on my radio show in the evenings. So he said, can you talk to Jerry Brown, see if I could get pardoned? Um, and I thought, wait a second, I know a very good friend of Jerry Brown's. So I used my, I called up my friend. Can I use your name? Yes, use my name. I contacted Jerry Brown's office, wrote a detailed letter, mentioned my friend's name, mentioned my media relationship with Governor Brown, appealed to his senses as a guy who was once thinking of becoming a Jesuit priest, and uh, told him about my friend Samuel Michael Huddleston and how he had his life was changed by God. Um, Samuel Michael Huddleston, I mean, he's a, an ordained minister with the Assembly of God Church and is part of the church's governing board worldwide. Um, he's done some incredible work in Africa, bringing water to communities that didn't have water. He's, um, he's worked, he was the president of a prison mentoring program. He's dedicated his life to racial reconciliation in the prisons. He's written books. He's, he's a speaker. He's got a PhD for crying out loud. Uh, he's totally turned his life around. And so Governor Brown, on uh, the Christmas Eve, I'm reading from the pardon. Samuel Michael Huddleston, a resident of California, has submitted to this office his application for executive clemency. And then I told you when he was sentenced, and then it goes on to talk about the fact, therefore I, Edmund G. Brown Jr., governor of the state of California, by virtue of the power and authority vested in me by the Constitution and statutes of the state of California, do hereby grant to Samuel Michael Huddleston a full and unconditional pardon for the above offense. So we're going to have an Another Chance podcast about Samuel Huddleston in the future. But can I just tell you this? God is able to pardon you unconditionally for the sins you've committed, past, present, and future. I know that's a mind boggler, but I didn't make this stuff up. It's in the Bible. Now, what else is in the Bible? Well, the prophecies. The prophecies that declare Yeshua, Messiah of Israel. Uh, Dr. Well, Charlie, in, in my mind, he's a doctor. Uh, Rabbi Charlie Cohen is the guy that's looking into the scriptures with us. And I want to replay our interview from last week in case you missed it. It's super, super cool. Take notes, if you will. And by the way, if you're not able to take notes while listening to this, just go to briansussman.com. I've got show notes when you go to listen to the Hidden Headlines podcast from my website, briansussman.com. All right, enjoy and God bless you. Yeah, the, the issue for Jewish people, there is a messianic expectation, there always has been, because of the nature of these biblical prophecies. The... The, the, the problem, however, and the, the reason why in the Jewish world we don't have everyone standing up and saying, well, who could have fit the bill better than Yeshua? Obviously, no one else came along and did any better than him. It's because, I think because of the historical baggage, there's an inclination towards a kind of a continental divide between Christianity and Judaism, and that inclination helps you pay attention to certain trends that you see in the scripture, or emphasize them. Here's the trend. Uh, much more than 50%, the vast majority of all of those Messianic prophecies speak of the kingship of the Messiah, that he would be a great king. It, and the reference, obviously, the number one connection would be to David, who is the king of all Israel, and is considered 
the greatest king amongst all of the kings of Israel, kind of the paradigm from which all others should have followed. So making that connection of the Messiah to someone like King David, along comes Yeshua. He is uh, he comes to his people in the land of Israel 2,000 years ago. And if you're looking backwards at that majority of Messianic prophecies and you're saying to yourself, was he the great king? Did he become the king, restore the nation? Did all people everywhere bow down to him? Uh, and so on. You would have to say no. And so this, I think, is a given ammunition to that, as I said, continental divide. It's It more or less is something, you could even say comforting for the Jewish people who have faced at times through history persecution and or forced conversions from Christianity who would look at that and say, okay, we're, we're safe, we're comfortable in this, we haven't missed the Messiah, because look, here's a list. What we're doing in our, and what we do in our study is to look at the totality of the Messianic prophecies, not just focus, we do focus on the kingly prophecies, but there are other aspects to what is promised in God's word that the Messiah would do and accomplish. And of course, uh, if you look at the totality of all of this, uh, Rabbi Charlie, you also yes. have to look at the future because there will be a future kingdom that is established where, whereby all knees shall bow to Yeshua Messiah. Well, yeah. In fact, you know, one of my criticisms of that, of the other approach, you know, the traditional Jewish approach, is that those prophecies were taken too literally. And right away, when someone says that about anything in the Bible, uh, if you have any kind of a conservative or fundamental approach to the Bible, you recoil at a statement like that. And you go, what do I mean, take it too literally? You can't overly take literally the Bible. It's the truth. <laughs> well, that's not exactly what I mean. What I mean is that, in fact, as you point out, there is a future fulfillment to uh, the pro prophetic anticipation of, of the king. And so he had some role or roles to fulfill uh, 2,000 years ago. And other roles, a greater role, well, a significant and final role will be that as the returning king. And by taking it literally, what I mean by that is to say, well, he must be king everywhere. He, all Jews everywhere must bow down to him. There must be world peace. All those kinds of things were anticipated at the appearance of Messiah. Mm -hmm. So, of course, if you if you hold the Messiah to that standard, you would be disappointed and say, well, Yeshua didn't do that. But we affirm it. We just say that portion of the fulfillment is what we would call uh, associated with the apocalypse, the final revelation of the Messiah to the world, where he will be that king. He will uh, reside we believe in Jerusalem and reign over the world. The nations will yield to him, and all Jews everywhere, hopefully, will bow down to him. It has its fulfillment, but it, it, there were other things that he must do and did do at that time. You know, the other part of it is for, for Jewish people, uh, again, just looking at the experience they've had living on planet Earth, there has been so much persecution and so much wrongdoing done in the name of Christianity, 
And it's true. Uh, there have been many who have come over the centuries who uh, proclaim to be followers of Christ, and yet the awful things they have done in terms of yeah. persecution, etc. And that's something that it's, it's very difficult for most Jews to get past. They almost need a, a historical revelation. That's right. And, you know, one thing that I'm quick to point out is, let's be honest about this, the historical baggage of, uh, of you know, to put it very mildly, euphemistically, the friction between Jews and Christians, is at the root of this. So that if we go back, let's just honestly turn the clock back 2,000 years. What did the Jews of the Holy Land at that time, what did they think? Did they walk up to Yeshua and say, are we having world peace? You know, did they walk up to him and say, are you going to be crowned the king of the world? Well, you know, all Jews everywhere bow down to you because you could be the Messiah. No, they were concerned about other things. And, uh, of course, there was concern, nationally speaking, but uh, the list that came a thousand years later isn't what fell from the lips of those who heard him speak. They would say things like, wow, we've never heard anyone teach like this. He seems to be more authoritative than even our best teacher. Mm -hmm. They would say things like, oh, he's descended from the tribe of Judah and from the line of David. Isn't this amazing? And then some even learned after, uh, late, late in the game that he was born in Bethlehem, just like the prophecy said he would be born in Bethlehem. Mm -hmm. And I think it's helpful to acknowledge the historical baggage and, and, and the chasm that exists there, and, but we need to be honest, both everyone needs to be honest, Christians and Jews, that there is a reason why, uh, you know, the Jewish view was kind of shoved into this corner, if you would, or backed up into a corner in order to defend themselves, they kind of became proactive in this. And, and this is how, I believe at least, the emphasis on who is the Messiah, what will he do, uh, developed in Jewish thinking defensively. Because, mm -hmm. you know, the actual scriptural uh, narrative or you know, as the facts we have, uh, the Gospels and the Acts and so on, don't paint that same picture. Mm -hmm. People weren't asking those questions. They were asking different questions. So let's get into some of these prophecies that are oftentimes a part of the, the Christmas celebration, yeah. um, beginning with the fact that Messiah would have to be born in Bethlehem. Talk to us yeah, about that. Okay, that's found in the uh, book of Micah. And uh, very interesting, it says, uh, I can kind of loosely quote here, because I don't have the actual scripture right in front of me, but something like, uh, Bethlehem, you who are very small amongst the villages or cities of Judah, from you will come one who will save my people. You know, that's kind of a nutshell, but mm -hmm. I mean, literally named Bethlehem, and in the time of Yeshua's public ministry, there was even an incident where he was teaching, and uh, some people were buying it, and some people weren't. The ones that were that particular day who weren't, they said, well, okay, you know, it's kind of like, you know, you ever heard that expression, there's something fishy going on here. And they were like, <laughs> well, okay, it's pretty good teaching, but 
what good thing can never come out of the Galilee? The Bible says he would be born in Bethlehem. Well, he was. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but the fact of the matter is, born there, yes, because of uh, the Romans had ordered a census of all the Jews. In other words, in those days, you would be identified with a certain village or place, and in order to be uh, enrolled on the census, to pay taxes, in other words, you need to go to your ancestral village where they'll count you up and put you on the, on the roll. And I guess that was the uh, ancestral village, you know, Joseph and his family had to go there. So they went there for that reason, but Mary was ready to give birth. And so he was literally born in Bethlehem, but that wasn't their present home. They, uh, after fleeing to Egypt and returning, they diverted and to the Galilee because the northern part of Israel at that time was not Judea, the Roman province of Judea. It was still controlled by Rome, but uh, would be a very much uh, less or safer area to live in. So grew up, lived in Nazareth, but was born in Bethlehem, fulfilled the prophecy. And fulfilling the prophecy prior to that, I think we have to obviously mention, and this is a stumbling block for a lot of people, yes. the fact that he was born of a virgin. Let's discuss okay. that, Rabbi okay. Shirley. Yeah. Well, see, I feel like it's more controversial than it needs to be, because, uh, first of all, the actual scriptural passage that that is taken from, from the Tanakh, the Old Testament, can be debated, and and uh, as to whether it means a young woman, a maiden, a virgin, and so uh, in the Septuagint, the, the Greek version of the Old Testament, those translators who were translating from the Hebrew did in fact choose the word virgin in, in Greek, and many uh, English Bibles lean on that in order to uh, confirm that the prophecy was a virgin. Of course, we know that Mary was, and uh, gave birth miraculously. Mm -hmm. But on the Jewish side, they look at this, and they say, well, wait a minute. If, if we just look at the Hebrew the way we know Hebrew, we would say that passage in Isaiah says a young woman would give birth. Mm -hmm. But then they say, let's back this up one step further. The context of the prophecy itself, you, you could argue very strongly, isn't even messianic. It had to do with a sign that was being given to a Judean king to know that his land was not going to be invaded uh, at that time mm -hmm. uh, by an alliance that had been formed with the northern king. So this was brother on brother. It was a threat of civil war. It was a threat that the northern kingdom, uh, who had made an alliance uh, with, uh, I don't know, Syria, I believe, if I remember right, well, Isaiah was sent to tell that king, don't worry about it. This northern kingdom and the alliance they formed is going to fall apart. Hmm. And as a sign, he said, the young woman, which, as I said, is often translated virgin, mm -hmm. and could be, will give birth. And before that son is old enough to know the difference between good and evil, this threat will be wiped away. Hmm. And so Jewish commentators look at that and say, well, look, this has nothing to do with the Messiah. Well, you know, as we often see, things have multiple fulfillments mm -hmm. uh, prophetically in the Bible. 
And the apostles were not immune from looking at passages such as that and saying, okay, it meant that at the time. However, it's also speaking about a great deliverance that will come through a uh, miraculous childbirth. And here, it fits it. I love that scripture, though. It's uh, Isaiah 7, 14, 15. Therefore, Adonai himself will give you a sign. The young woman will become pregnant, bear a son, and name him Emmanuel. And by the time he knows enough to refuse evil and choose good, and then it goes on. That's just a beautiful, beautiful passage. I know. It is. And, and of course, the apostles look at that and go, yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. You know, here we have seen the fulfillment of this in (laughs) our days as well. And I think the thing to emphasize especially vis-a-vis, you know, any curiosity or interest on the part of Jewish people, is look at the connection and linkage of Messiah's actual birth to the patriarchs, Abraham, Sarah, the, the birth of the, of the covenantal son, Isaac. Sarah is 90 years old, and Baron, Abraham is 100 years old, miraculous childbirth. And then in the case of their son, Isaac, who marries Rebecca. Rebecca cannot have children until Isaac prays, and it says the Lord opened her womb. Miraculous childbirth. And then in the third generation of the patriarchs, Jacob, who first marries Leah by trickery, but then his chosen wife, Rachel, she doesn't bear children. And Leah has uh, four children in a row, four sons in a row. And then Rachel says, here, take my handmaid, who then has two sons. And she celebrates that, you know, uh, and then Leah does the same thing. And then her handmaiden has two sons. And so we're all the way up to ten sons, and still Rachel has never given birth. Hmm. How does she give birth? Well, a little awkward, she says to her husband, give me children or else I die. But he did pray, and it, and it does say that God opened her womb. And that's when she gave birth to Joseph, uh, her 11th, or their 11th, child, and then uh, right before she died, Benjamin. So you look at all of these, all of these patriarchs of the faith, they all had somewhat spectacular births. I can even think of Moses and his situation after being birthed, being floated down the river. Yes. If you take away the spectacular birth in which Scripture is very clear, Mm -hmm. God has a hand in it, miraculously, Mm -hmm. we have no patriarchs Mm -hmm. other than Abraham. You know, he would be the last one, the first and only. So, I mean, it's true, you know. We should really literally say the founding of the, of the Jewish uh, nation in Israel is entirely dependent on miraculous childbirth. It's the hallmark, you could even say. Mm-hmm. So when Yeshua comes along, and then an angel speaks, you know, the Mary, and the thing was uh, also with John, which was miraculous, right away our radar should go up, because... This is what happened with the patriarchs. The other thing, this time of the year, we, we always hear about the, the, the three kings from the Orient who come to, to worship the baby Jesus. Um, historians tell us that uh, there's a lot more to that story than, than meets the eye, but the fact of the matter is the Scripture tells us that he was to be adored by great persons, correct? Yeah, that's right. Now, we don't know much about the Magi, of course, and... For me, I would put that into a category that I call a sign. So, in other words, there's not much to be learned from it. Uh, It's like a pointer. It's like a sign. Hey, people, look. There he is. And so, similarly, 
Even the angels who were in the fields with the shepherds, they didn't say much, right? They spoke to the shepherds, and they said, hey, go down to the village there. Something great's happening for our people. And uh, the birth in Bethlehem was a sign, so that later you could look at this man and say, okay, are there indicators that he's telling the truth? The signs were affirmations, and the Magi were an affirmation. So when God brought great people, we know, still don't know who they were from the East, but obviously they had some importance. They were carrying silver and gold and frankincense and looking for, they said, the one born the king of the Jews. Mm-hmm. It's a sign. Uh, you can't learn a tremendous amount from it, but it wasn't meant to teach. It was meant to affirm. And it was meant to get their attention and affirm. God's here and doing something. Pay attention. The signs are always that way in the Bible. Another sign, and you alluded to this earlier when we you spoke of John, of course, or that would be John the Baptist, as he's known. Yeah. Um, but the scriptures are very clear in Isaiah 40, Malachi 3, that, that this Messiah would be preceded by one who would announce him. Could you talk to us about that? Okay, that was really interesting, because... Uh, this is one of the things in Jewish tradition that the one who precedes and announces the Messiah is a very important person in our tradition and uh, and pops up at important life cycle and uh, Holy Day situations. For example, at the Passover, within the Passover celebration and the meal, we always have uh, after it, uh, we have four cups of wine that are scattered throughout the meal, and each, each one has its own certain significance. But after the meal, we have a cup for Elijah, none other than Elijah. And it's called the Kos Eliyahu, the cup of Elijah. And uh, we open the door. We Usually a child has the job of doing this. The door is swung open, and we announce, you know, this would be a good time for the Messiah to come and for Elijah to announce him, you know, that he has that role. When John came, people were wondering, even because he was, uh, you know, rather ascetic. He uh, didn't hang out with wealthy people, and he spoke very powerfully. People were listening, but he said, "I am not the man. One who's coming after me is the man." He said, "I'm not even worthy to untie the sandals of his feet, and the man coming after me." And here's the interesting thing. How would he know who the Messiah would be? How do you know it's him? Mm-hmm. And it's his job to tell everyone. So we read in, in the book of John that God spoke to him and said, here's how you'll know. He said, when you see my spirit descend on him in bodily form, you'll know that's the guy. And sure enough... Mm-hmm. John was at the River Jordan immersing people and calling for people to repent. Uh, And this is is also, by the way, in keeping with Jewish tradition of immersion for sanctification and purification. Yeshua himself shows up, and at first he tried to stop him because, you know, it was obviously already a sense that even in his own spirit that this was a holy man. And when he did immerse him, when Yeshua arose uh, in the river, he said, he witnessed this. And he said, the Spirit descended upon him in a bodily form. He said, this 
he said, I'm testifying to you, is the Son of God. So he himself received that as a sign. What does it mean? He doesn't talk about that, nor really is that explained. It's as a sign. And in fact, it was accompanied with a second sign, which uh, in the Jewish tradition we call a batkol, where which is where when the, uh, God speaks from the heavens so that we can hear here on earth. It occurred at Sinai uh, when all the Israel gathered in front of the mountain and mm-hmm. Moses went up on the mountain and they heard him speak uh, the commandments. That's the batkol. So the batkol was associated with that same event. Everyone heard, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. This is somewhat of an aside, but most Gentiles do not realize that John the Baptist didn't invent baptism. <laughs> right. <laughs> they really think, oh, he, he was the first. This is, no, as you just described, this is a long-standing tradition amongst Jewish people. That's right. And, and, and not only not long-standing, but an integral tr- tradition, even up to this very day, because immersion is needed when one becomes unclean ritually, and that's not an implication of sin. It's, you know, there are various reasons why you could be ritually unclean. Even accidentally eating non-kosher food, mm-hmm. for example, would make you unclean. Uh, but, but it also came to be associated with repentance and, and forgiveness, and this is why uh, John was understood when he cried out uh, to the people. You know, it's time for you people to straighten up. Be immersed. In other words, you're making a public declaration, declaration in the immersion. And so you're right. Uh, it, was, it was baptism, called in the Christian context, wasn't in, invented by John. He was simply playing on uh, this aspect of Jewish life, which mm-hmm. was possibly weekly for many, uh, and for the ladies, monthly, certainly, and a very important aspect of their life. And we know, it's very interesting, uh, so many of these, let me use the Christian term baptismal, but in the Jewish term it's a mikvah, have been found in and around the Temple Mount in Jerusalem that date to the time of Yeshua and John the Baptist. And a, a very interesting thing was recently discovered by an archaeologist, which is uh, when one was immersed before ascending to the Temple Mount so that they could participate in the worship at the Temple Mount, otherwise they might be questionable or unclean, how would the temple guards on the Mount know to let them in? People of scholars have wondered about this. Hmm. Well, they found these little ceramic chips, this is very recently, uh, that are stamped with the imprint, uh, something to the effect of holy unto the Lord. And they now know, and they found these around the, uh, in the, I don't know, buried near the mikvah or whatever, that there was an observer who would be standing there at the mikvah, and he would see the worshiper enter, be immersed, do everything properly, of course, as needed, proper blessings, everything appropriate, and when he came out of the water, or she, they would be given this little chip, and then when they went to the Temple Mount, they would hand that to the Temple Guard, and they would be admitted. So here is historical archaeological evidence that supports this as well. Wow. 
So then, Rabbi Charlie, as you're talking about the mikvahs, you're talking about the immersions, the baptisms, I'm listening to you, and quite honestly, this is all new news to me. I, I haven't yeah. heard this before. This is, this is brand new, isn't it, in terms yeah. of the discovery? That, absolutely. I mean, we're talking about within months. And uh, I've been reading about it online. Uh, archaeologists in Jerusalem have published it. And it's amazing. We, we knew just logically that something like that must be the case, but now we know the, the historical evidence is there. We know how important the mikvah was, and now we know that you know there were attendants who were standing there at the mikvah. They were watching to make sure that uh, the process happened properly. And then on the Temple Mount itself, hmm. Uh, the temple guards are obviously instructed that, you know, when the worshiper comes up, they return the chit and they're permitted entry based wow. on what? Their sanctification through the mikvah. My goodness, this is fantastic. Archaeology is so wonderful. It is. Let's, let's continue here because as we're talking about uh, Yeshua, Jesus, during this quote-unquote Christmas season, uh, we also know that the prophecies... Would talk about his talked about his life as being a prophet like Moshe or Moses, and then yeah. having a ministry of binding up the brokenhearted and proclaiming liberty to the captives. All these things, of course, fulfilled. But let's talk about the scriptures leading up to the fulfillment. Okay, well, of course, Deuteronomy 18 is the record of the statement by Moses, who was, uh, according to tradition. The entire book of Deuteronomy was written in the 11th month of the last year of his life. So, you know, in the last 30 days of his life, he's wrapping everything up in the book of Deuteronomy, and suddenly he says, and by the way, God will raise up for you a prophet just like me. Pay attention to him. And that's uh, in uh, Deuteronomy 18. Now, the interesting thing is, I think it's I can say this fairly safely, it's pretty universally accepted in the Jewish world that that prophecy has never been fulfilled. And uh, when you look and read in the Gospels, you'll see time and time again, when Yeshua was approached, people would say, are you the one? Are you the prophet? And, and what they're talking about is Deuteronomy 18. Mm -hmm. They want to know, are you finally going to be the one? More than just the ability to say these are the words of God, but the authority to make pronouncements in the name of God that were authoritative and would require all worshipers to adhere to and to follow. And so waiting, 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 the prophets were a big deal, of course, but no one came along like uh, Moses or Moshe, who was the logic. And then the ministry of, well, we read this in Isaiah 61, it's almost like a job description for the Messiah um, in the way he would, quote-unquote, bind up the brokenhearted and proclaim liberty to the captives and, and announce the acceptable year of the Lord. What does all that mean? When he read that himself aloud in the synagogue in Nazareth. When, when Yeshua read this? Yeah. Yes. People got pretty excited. So he steps up. He step, He steps up before the congregation, and they're having, I guess, like the parsha. They're they're reading from the from the scroll, correct? Yeah. And do you think this was an assigned reading for that day, or or was this something that just he just did before the congregation? Well, I think it's likely that uh, that particular reading was the 
uh, what we call the Haftarah, or the reading for the prophets, mm-hmm. that is associated with the reading from the Torah mm-hmm. for that day. Uh, so, I think so that means that synagogues all over the all over the Jewish world, they'd be reading that that assigned scripture on that day. I would think, yeah. and you know, many within you know within uh, you know the observant uh, Jewish world believe that the, the cycle of the Torah and the prophets goes back all the way to Ezra and Nehemiah, was established by them after the return from the captivity in Babylon. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at a very ancient uh, cycle of reading the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and an associated passage from the prophets. Now, I, I have a feeling that since Yeshua's time, Isaiah 61 isn't necessarily associated with one of those 54 Torah readings anymore. Mm-hmm. But, you know, that probably happened after the fact, sure. during the Talmudic period, when, like, hey, I think we need to revise our schedule here. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, it's a little too blatant, huh? <laughs> a little too blatant. In fact, it's possible even Isaiah 53 was one of those Torah readings, or, you know, prophetic readings mm-hmm. in the Torah cycle, but has been removed. Uh, that's what I suspect. But, when you read uh, Isaiah 61, you know, it's very comforting, assuring uh, words, you know, proclaim the year of favor of Adonai, the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, provide for those in Zion who mourn, give them garlands instead of ashes, oil gladness instead of mourning, a cloak of praise instead of a heavy spirit. Uh, they'll be called oaks of righteousness planted by, by the Lord. Uh, he, he will, and here comes the, what I call the R words of uh, the activities of the Messiah. He will rebuild the ancient ruins, restore sites long destroyed, renew the ruined cities. This is the Jewish expectation of Messiah to this very day. Mm-hmm. And when Yeshua read that in the synagogue that morning, people got excited. Because even though Judea existed and had a measure on a big measure, but a measure of independence from Rome. It was still under the thumb of Rome when he read that. Wow, people stood back and said, oh, this is great news, you know. Uh, but unfortunately, he tempered that as well when he said, good news as it is, you probably won't receive it anyway because it's coming from my mouth. <laughs> and they tried to toss him off a mountaintop, you know. Well, and this is a good point because the scriptures are also very clear that this Messiah would be undesired, rejected by his own people, rejected by the leadership of the day. So all of this is consistent. Right. The problem in Jewish interpretation of the Bible is trying to reconcile these two ideas, that the Messiah would be received with open arms and he would be rejected by the same people. And they're like, how could this be? It can't be. It's because... It wasn't fully understood or even fully, I don't, even fully revealed yet what the initial work of the Messiah would require. And it wasn't to be that global king, not just yet. He had a, a, a mediatorial role, a high priestly role, even though he was from Judah. He had a, a role in, uh, in, a, in atonement that ultimately would supplant the role of atonement in the Levitical sacrifices. All of those kinds of things weren't fully appreciated or understood. 
And you mentioned the atonement, and we can't mention the atonement without mentioning the fact that it had been prophesied that he would also be raised from the dead. Yeah. So, uh, a little bit cryptically, but but some of those prophecies were better understood after the fact. Mm-hmm. Even after the fact, we read of the story of Yeshua walking with several disciples, explaining to them because they didn't understand. And when he got done explaining, they said, weren't our hearts burning within us? Mm-hmm. We heard those words. And so he had to walk them through all of the scripture, and then that would be linked with what they knew and had seen in the pre- previous years. And all that makes sense because when you think about it, we read the book of Revelation, for example, in the, in the quote-unquote New Testament, yeah. and it seems a bit cryptic, but there will come a time where uh, during those events or after those events, it will all make sense. So these yeah. prophecies are much the same. Yeah. I would take, for example, the book of Daniel, in which you have world kingdoms that are be called, being called lions and bears and things such as that. Mm-hmm. And after the fact, now that we know, we've seen the, the uh, Persian Empire, the Median Empire, mm-hmm. and the Greek empires, and the Roman empires all come and go. You can go back and read the book of Daniel and go, whoa, that is so accurate. Mm-hmm. But in his time, I don't think anyone would have had any clue what he was right. talking about. What do you mean the bear is going to rise up? And, you know, and what's with this lion and all these weird animal figures and, you know, horns and all this kind of stuff? So a lot of prophecy, for various reasons, you know, God has his reasons is understood in hindsight mm-hmm. not always not always fully understood ahead of the time but once understood you have no choice but to glorify god and of course right. we should also let our, our our jewish listeners know that when we speak of the book of revelation in the new testament yeah um so much of the the prophetic in the book of revelation comes from the tanakh these are right from the jewish prophets yeah uh you're right a lot of the, well, because the the, the vision of, of called uh, John's vision called the Book of Revelation, mm-hmm. uh, it's an expansion of uh, apoc- the apocalyptic idea, which does exist elsewhere uh, in Scripture in the Tanakh. The, in uh, the Book of Zechariah is a good example. The 12th chapter of Zechariah. Uh, there's apocalyptic literature elsewhere. Mm-hmm. And his vision was, you, you could say, kind of a detailed expansion on that apocalyptic idea, mm-hmm. which is simply, if we, if we put this very succinctly, that there, first of all, there would be an end of the age. What does that mean? The end of the world? No. Now, I don't know. Do we have time for me to mention something about this notion of uh, end time, uh, eschatological as, as long idea. as you brought it up, I'll, I'll allow you. <laughs> okay, let me wander off on a little tangent here. Okay, this this will be a, the special edition inside the special edition. Go ahead, that's great. There are only two religions in the world that have an eschatology that is positive. Eschatology means that there will eventually be an end of the age we live in, and here's how it wraps up. Mm-hmm. Every other religion in the world has a devastatingly negative eschatology, including Buddhism, hmm. which is supposedly this peaceful, loving religion, you know, 
you know, you sit cross-legged and meditated in a Zen state or whatever. Mm-hmm. Every other religion talks about the destruction and annihilation of the world in their eschatology. Uh, Islam does. In Islam, a fire begins in Yemen and consumes the world, destroying everybody. In Buddhism, it's nihilism. Everything just evaporates into nothingness, ultimately, when the final Buddha comes. And so on and so forth. Only Judaism and Christianity, because Christianity is a daughter of Judaism, Mm -hmm. and picks up the same and expands on the same ideas, has a positive view that there is, in fact, an end of the present age, which simply means a change in the way God relates to the human race. Mm. And in Judaism and in Christianity, it's a very positive change. We say, and the Bible agrees with us, that that's the final uh, and permanent appearance of the Messiah who rules and reigns from Jerusalem and sets things aright. Eschatology, it's the talk about the end time or ending things. And you know, that is so hopeful. And, and that's my hope during this particular season, Rabbi, that, that there will be Jews and Gentiles alike who come to know the truth because this truth will set them free. And again, the end game is <laughs> so wonderful, isn't it? Wouldn't it be yeah. nice to know that you, 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 you go to your, your last breath knowing that there's something even better awaiting you? Right. So to pull this back to the track we were on a, a minute ago, mm-hmm. before I diverted a little bit, the, the, both the Jewish, as I say, the Jewish and Christian eschatologies are positive, but in the book of Revelation, it affirms that the end of the age will be, uh, the sign of the end of the age will be that God's judgment on the world will be visible and noted as that he is the initiator of it. And our little miniature example of that would be Israel and Egypt. When Moses stood before Pharaoh and made certain demands, miraculous things happened, and finally even Pharaoh's most closest aides and assistants said, don't you see, this is the hand of God. And at the end of the age, when God is determined to shift and change the way he relates to the race, which will now be through a present, visible, seen uh, king, Messiah himself, that there are markers of that, and one of the markers is uh, judgment on nations or certain nations that will be visible, visible and known as the hand of God. And so the book of Revelation isn't so strange when we read about those things because the various cups and bowls of wrath and so on. It's simply affirming that that is, in fact, the apocalyptic moment that at the end of the age his judgment is visible. And then, we, as well, his Messiah will be known and will be visible. That the Messiah will be known and will be visible to you in 2019. That's Hidden Headlines for this last week of 2018. Thanks for joining me. I'm Brian Sussman. Make sure you share this broadcast with others. See you next time.